Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Turkcraft Epistemology. I'm Travis Shaddix. I hope everybody is doing well. Had a good weekend. I see some frost out there this morning in Lexington on the rooftops and the cars, so it's getting a little colder. <clears throat> I don't see anything on the turf yet as far as early morning frost, but I'm sure there's a little bit there. We got down to, I think it was 40 this morning, 39, 40, something like that this morning. And then it's going to warm back up later in the week, I think at 78 or something, 79 later in the week. So temperature fluctuations are all over the place right now, which is a little bit about what we're going to talk about today. I didn't really set up that intro on purpose like that, but we're going to talk about temperature fluctuations and what happens in some cases when we have drastic reductions in temperature. Good to see everybody in the chat. I'm really glad people are participating. Start seems like there's a little bit of a movement towards this channel, more participation. I, I guess we're doing something right here. Haven't offended anybody too much yet. So whether you're out there spraying or if you're in California at 7 a.m. getting dressed or getting ready for work or school or whatever, you can kind of just sit back and relax and listen to some turf grass stuff. Had a good weekend. My son's birthday was Saturday. Para meu filho, você tem 12 anos, muitos braços para você. Parabéns, eu te amo muito. He's 12. We had a little birthday party for him. We were on the back deck and we were singing happy birthday in my backyard neighbor and across the backyard. As soon as we got done singing happy birthday to him, they, they like to play music over there in the back, in their, my back door neighbor. <clears throat> Thank goodness it's good music though. And um, after we were done singing happy birthday to him, they played the, the Beatles happy birthday song from the other yard. So I thought that was kind of cute. Told him thank you. <clears throat> when my son was two, excuse me for my voice this morning. <clears throat> when my son was two, we have a video of him dancing to the Beatles happy birthday song. I think if I put that on the, on the channel, I'd probably get more followers because <laughs> it's hilarious. It's a funny video. Um, you know, he could barely even speak at that age and he's dancing around to the Beatles. I thought that was funny. Anyway, so we did that on Saturday, and then Sunday we got a new game for him. If you've ever, if you've ever played the game Catan, C-A-T-A-N, you uh, probably would appreciate it. But if you haven't, it's a pretty interesting board game. Um, we played that for like, well, they played it for just like five hours yesterday. So it's been, it was a good weekend, really, really good weekend. So I. Um, I finished last week with a, uh, you know, <laughs> unintended rant, if you want to call it that, about a video and um, try to get a hold of that guy. There's a video on Iron. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of deal here. I just kind of fill you guys in on a little bit what's going on. Um, let me just say this is that. I don't know if anybody understands iron in the soil, to be honest with you. 
There was a professor in the 70s. His name was Lindsay. He might under he might have understood iron. And one of his graduate students who ended up being a professor at UF, who I ended up being next door to, he might understand iron to some degree. But I don't know if anybody fully understands iron in the soil and the in the turf grass system. I mean, it's unbelievably complicated. <clears throat> but the video was a little bit off. And what offended me was he was using at least I inferred that he was using my research to say some things that just didn't connect with the research. So I <clears throat> had a little rant there and um, reached out to him on a few things. I wasn't able to get a hold of him. I, I put a few comments just in his video, just asked him to give me a call or give me an email. But they, the comments didn't show up. I don't know why. Anyway, he replied to one of my email or one of my videos and just provided some explanations and some reasons and he's, he seems interested. I mean, he seems sincere. I mean, I, I, I inferred from his, from his comment that he does seem interested in learning and he didn't, doesn't intend to provide any misinformation. And, um, he asked some good questions. And so I've, I've replied back to him. And so maybe he and I can have an email uh, conversation or maybe have a phone call here or there and kind of, um, create something, uh, you know, productive and useful out of a, out of an odd sort of situation. So, um, I just want to read two things that he put in his, in his reply, because one of them struck me as particularly, um, important. Um, he said two things that I, this is him speaking, two things I learned from your, your critique. It's not the phosphorus locking up the iron as I've repeatedly heard. That's number one. Well, phosphorus locks up the iron. You know, if you want to call it, if you want to call that, I don't like that phrase cause it's not scientific, but it binds with, uh, binds with iron binds with phosphorus for sure, but it's not going to happen like that. Um, near to the degree it will with, with, with oxygen. Um, so <clears throat> that's not a point of major concern. Like it's going to reduce the amount of phosphorus in the soil to such a degree that it's going to be a problem. You know, I sort of inferred that from what he said, um, but he, you know, he caught that. It's like, it's not that big of an issue. It is, it is an issue, but it's not near the big, as big an issue as it is binding with oxygen. And then number two, which is what I thought would, and I'll go into this in more detail at a future time in terms, not this, not this video back and forth, but the i the iron in in the turf grass system um and number two which is what i thought was um very important that he wrote this and it, and it leads me to believe that maybe maybe this channel is providing some benefit to to him and to other people he said uh, more expensive chelations also don't do any good in soil at reasonable application rates this is pretty shocking to me as i've heard otherwise but there are a lot more products i don't believe in oh wait there's a lot more products I don't believe in then products I do believe in. So I apparently should have, here's the key. I, apparently I should have been more skeptical, even if the source was one I would consider an advocate for sound agronomy. And really that, you know, that to me, that's important that he would say that because, um, he's, 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 I, I'm, again, I'm inferring from what he's saying that he's, he feels he should have been more skeptical about the information he was receiving and really sound skepticism healthy skepticism is um a protectant to us um and and it's important that we learn how to become skeptical and uh, part of that process is learning how to think critically and understanding the systems a little bit but but that skepticism is is, is important and if i've if i've done anything i hope i've maybe planted a seed of knowledge there for him and and to to maybe that seed will grow into a 
a base of learning how to be healthy, healthy, healthily, <laughs> learning how to be skepticism in a healthy, skeptical in a healthy way. Um, it's not to be um, dismissive or cynical or anything like that, but but to have skepticism about the information you have until you have sufficient information or sufficient evidence to convince you one way or the other, um, whether you should um, tend to believe it's true or tend to not believe it's true. That comes from being a little skeptical at the beginning. So I, I thought that was nice that he wrote that. And um, for whoever, I don't again, I don't know the gentleman's name, um, but I've I've reached out again and said, "Hey, here's my email. Give me, give me an email, and we'll have a chit chat. Maybe we can create something interesting together, and 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 I can help you out, and you, maybe you can help me out." So, anyway, that's it about that. That was last week. Today's paper is quite short, and um, it's not particularly complicated or involved. I wanted to start with this. I mean, we're still doing cool season fall fertility, and. I have another seven or eight papers, I think it is. So we'll probably do this for another two weeks and then I'm going to switch and probably do something else. Um, but today's paper is not specifically on nutrition. It's more just on the temperature fluctuations and the hardiness of the turf grass as it goes into winter. Uh, I, I just, for some reason, felt like I should include this in this topic for this session, if you want to call it that, this week. Um <clears throat> Um, so I'm trying, I'm sorry, I can't do everything reading the chat. I'm really glad you guys are chatting. I, it's hard for me to keep up with everything, but, um, so let's get into the, the article, if I can do that. Okay. So the, the, the title of this article is freeze resistance in cold acclimation in turf grasses. This was published in Hort Science. It's an open access journal now in 1983. And so you can go and just Google that title or go to ashs.org and you can search for these authors or this title and this, this article can pop up and you can read the whole thing. It's a very short article. I'll probably end up reading through most of it. I've highlighted some of it, but it's so short that it may just be worth reading through it. Um, the authors are, I can't really pronounce the names. I'm sorry, but it's Raja Shekhar, Tao and Lee. And um, for some reason, the, First author reminds me of Raji Shankar, the sitar player from, you know, the 60s and 70s with, you know, taught George Harrison and those guys, the sitar and all that stuff. But it's Raja, Shek Raja Shekar. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that name. Uh, so let's just get started. And it's basically the con that this paper is going to be talking about um, what will occur if. Uh, the turf grass uh, experiences cold reductions or temperature temperature reductions too quickly, and what what sort of you might, might expect in terms of uh, winter kill or you know issues during the winter if if it we have a sudden freeze basically. Now this is all done in the lab, but uh, we'll read through it. Here we go. Uh, cold season turf grasses are among the hardiness hardiest herbaceous plants the leaves of some species of turf grass can survive as low as negative 40 c so if anybody wants a point of trivia you know how um, celsius and fahrenheit are different units there is exactly one temperature that is the exact same for celsius and fahrenheit and that temperature is negative 40. however following a severe winter the overall recovery and growth of turf grass depends depend mainly upon the survival of the regenerative parts of the plants, such as the crown stolons rhizomes, which are often less cold resistant than leaves. Freezing injury to turf grasses is particularly common in late winter or early spring. I'm going to go into that a little bit. 
Although fully cold-hardened, cool-season turf grasses can tolerate fairly low temperatures in midwinter, the freezing injury appears to occur when the plants are acclimated or deacclimated. So what that's before I go on, that what that's saying is is during the fall when things are acclimating or during the spring when when turf grasses are deacclimating is when some of the damage the worst damage can occur. And I'm sure we've all have experiences or examples of that that you can you can point out where um, I'll just use one example on warm season grasses where in the uh, spring in Florida, even in Florida, in the spring there there is I'll leave the names out of it, but there's an area where there's there was a lot of St. Augustine grass planted in a very well known community in in north central Florida, and everything's fine. This particular turf grass is only stoloniferous, meaning there's no below ground stems. And so one year it happened to get particularly cold and in, in the spring and basically wiped out all the uh, St. Augustine grass in, in this particular area. And it, and it probably would not have occurred had it not occurred right when the turf grass was kind of growing out of the winter, you know, dormancy period in Florida. And I'm sure you can have examples in the fall and many of you have seen, you know, cold, you know, winter kill and so forth, uh, in, in the late fall and so forth. But it's when the, when the plant is acclimating itself or deacclimating itself, when there's the most risk, it's not so much when the dead of winter, when the, if the turf's already hardened off that we, we see a lot of depth, the temperature can drop quite low at those period, those times. And the evidence is pretty clear that, you're, you know, this risk of death is not quite as severe as if the same temperature occurs later in the spring or early in the fall. When the plant's not quite as hardened off. In this study, we report the freeze resistance of leaf crown and root tissues of non-hardened and hardened plants of three species. Okay, so they're gonna, we're going to look at all those those. Oops, we're going to look at these uh, these where are we at uh, leaf crown and root tissues. I'm not so much worried in, in the world of turf. I'm not so much worried about the leaf as I am the crown. The, the meristematic tissue of the crown. If it dies, it's done. There's no suddenly coming back. Okay. If the leaf dies, it's not good. If the root dies, it's not great. But as long as the, the crown survives, there's a pretty good chance that you could be able to recover from that. But if the crown's dead, the the that's it. The, the turf's dead. It'll have to come back from some other meristematic tissue on some other area of the of the lawn. But that particular crown will be dead and that turf will be dead. This study is also concerned with the process of cold acclimation in leaves and crown tissue of chewing fescues under controlled conditions. Okay, so I'm going to explain a little bit of how they did it. Um, sod plugs, 10 centimeters long and 6 centimeters in diameter of perennial ryegrass, Kentucky bluegrass, and chewing fescues turf, of turf grasses were collected in November bef before soil freeze from plots on St. Paul campus. So we are in Minnesota. So it is really cold. <laughs> okay, the samples were placed in polyethylene bags and stored under moist conditions. The plugs, okay, blah blah. The plugs appeared to sustain injury under these conditions of storage, notably the leaves and roots. After more than three weeks of storage, plugs of ten selected cultivars from the three species of turf grasses were planted in pots. So they pulled them out of the field. They put them in some bags. There might have been a little bit of injury to the leaves and the roots, but they put them and they planted them in pots containing soil, sand, and unsphagnum peat moss. The plants were grown in growth chambers. At 20 degree days, 18 degree uh, nights, under 14, so they put them in a grow chamber and let them at, grow, basically, after they pulled them out of the field. Cold acclimation treatments were imposed, so then they're going to explain how they, how they 
acclimated them or didn't acclimate them based upon the, the treatment they had. Cold acclimation treatments were imposed by growing the plants at either day-night con constants of 5 degrees or 0 degrees Celsius. So just above freezing and at freezing. Under an 11-hour photo... Okay, that's a light. For hardiness evaluation, plants were washed free of soil and each sample contained two plants were wrapped in cheesecloth and was cooled in ice and alkaline at negative two and the glycol bath. So they're going to go through the glycol bath thing, which we've talked about before, where they, um, they're looking at electrolyte leakage, which if you've, if you're not, if you haven't watched any other videos, electrolyte leakage is the process where they'll, um, estimate or attempt to predict what will happen in the field by freezing them and then, uh, determining the leakage of electrolytes out of the plant. So they'll, They'll freeze the plant at a certain temperature and then they'll defrost it and extract electrolytes that dissolve into solution around the tissue. And they'll come up with like 20, whatever the number, 20 milligrams or whatever. Then they'll freeze the entire thing or actually no, they'll boil the whole thing and break open all the tissue cells and get the total electro electrolytes that were in the tissue. So it's a total electrolytes that were in the tissue compared to the percentage of electrolytes that leaked out of the tissue when it was exposed to a certain temperature and they have an idea from that they get an idea as to how hardy the plant would be or how resistant it would be to cold cold damage it doesn't always line up with what we see in the field but um there's a pretty good likelihood that it will there's 70 80 percent chance i know the r squareds are somewhere around the 0.8 number and many of these, when they try to correlate what you saw in electrolyte leakage versus what you saw in the field. But we are aware of some of the early papers we already talked about where that um, test, um, they said this is going to happen. And then later on, the scientists found that they, they don't happen at all. So we have to take with this a little bit of skepticism, as we mentioned at the beginning. Let's go down to the next uh, highlighted area. Although the electrolyte leakage is well-defined and occurs over a narrow temperature range on in non-hardened plants, it is rather gradual in hardened plants particularly in hardened crown tissues, which often leaked electrolytes over the entire range of temperatures and tested. So it's basically letting you know that it worked for, for non-hardened plants, but for hardened plants, you know, it's a little bit uh, iffy, I guess. In the majority of cases, the conductivity test could not be used satisfactorily to determine the killing temperatures of the roots. So you'll see some numbers in here for the roots where they're just missing numbers, where it just didn't work for the roots. The, the uh, electrolyte leakage test just didn't function and didn't work well when they did it on the roots. Okay. Um, the cold hardiness of leaves, crowns, and in some cases, roots of perennial ryegrass, Kentucky bluegrass, and red fescues, and oh, and chewing fescues are shown in table one. Even the non-hardened plants grown at 20 degree days and 18 degree nights temperatures were moderately cold hardy. Okay, even the non-hardened plants were moderately cold hardy. The crowns of all species tested were at greater than negative nine degrees, and the hardiest plant crowns of servo which survived at negative 17 so let's look at uh, this particular graph if i can uh, you guys can see that on the screen i don't need to zoom in so this this section here on a we're looking what those listening we're looking at two graphs one graph with an a and a b panel on the y-axis we have conductivity so we're measuring the electrolyte leakage out of the plant that's the conductivity and on the x-axis we have temperatures from 0 to 20 on one and then from 0 to 35 on the next graph the graph on the left on the left is the hard non-hardened non-hardened uh turf and the grass on the right was the the grasses that were allowed to harden off so they allowed them to you know expose them to temperatures gradually and they hardened them off the circle is the leaf and the square is the crown 
Okay, in this particular case on the left, when it's not hardened off, the leaf and the crown were roughly the same, where we see the the electrolyte leakage reaching its maximum at about 15 degrees. Okay, that's just what this is saying. Okay, so like 80, 85% electrolyte leakage occurred at negative 15 degrees when it was not hardened off. But when it was hardened off, we can see negative 15 degrees, you only have about 20, 25% leakage, whereas it was 85% when it was hard, when it uh, was not hardened off. So we can see right here between these two graphs, let me erase these red lines here, we can, between these two graphs that the influence of hardening off on electrolyte leakage, it requires, in order to get 80% leakage from the leaf and from the crown, you're looking at temperatures of negative 25 or greater from hardened off plants. Whereas if they're not hardened off, that same leakage occurred, you know, much, much earlier. It, it, it didn't need to get that cold and you're already breaking apart uh, plant cell plant cells is what this graph is saying. Okay. Um, if there's any questions on that, then, then let me, let me know. I'm really sorry. I'm really bad about check checking chat, but, um, Used to get oh, okay. That's still okay. Um, oh yeah, Looney's. I hope never. Uh, Looney says I hope never. Hope never experienced how negative forty feels. Last year, obviously, a lot of people experienced negative degrees last year. In Lexington, it got to down down to negative seven Fahrenheit, and the the wind chill was negative twenty seven. That's the lowest that I saw it go last year. It was negative twenty seven for that one or two days there. If you remember, it got real cold. And you can see now, even the damage now from that cold snap on boxwoods in, in Kentucky just got wiped out. I mean, it probably seems like every other boxwood has either complete death or partially dead from, from that temperature. And um, the reason I say that is, is that the, uh, the, yes, it will, hardening off the plant will definitely reduce the temperature needed to kill it. But if it gets low enough, it'll kill it. <laughs> okay, I mean, it's not going to, you know, eliminate its. Uh, it's not going to completely shield it from death. It's just going to greatly lower that temperature to the point where hopefully you don't get down that low and the plant's fine. Okay. Um. So that's the only reason I mentioned that. Let's get let's get onto it because there's a couple points that I want to make sure that I, I hit on. And so let's go down to the. Um, Let's go down to the next highlighted area. The hardiest cultivar in this study was wintergreen, which was table one. I'll get to that in a second, which was chosen to examine the process of cold acclimation in leaves and crowns at acclimating temperatures of negative of zero and, and five degrees Celsius. Although the general pattern of acclimation was similar in both leaves and crowns, the increase in hardiness of crowns lagged behind that of leaves by about a week. And that's right here in figure two. Oh, I'm sorry, in figure two, which is down here. So what he's talking about is this this line right here. So we're looking at a very similar graph, but this time it's the killing temperature. And this this killing temperature, where what he's talking about is it lagged behind in the in the crown tissues by about a week compared to the leaf tissue here. Okay, I don't know if that's important to you guys or not, but um, let's go to the next let's go to the next highlighted area. I think I can. Um, yeah, let me just read the next one because I want to go to table one in a second. 
At the acclimating temperature of 5 degrees, the increases in the cold hardiness in leaves and crowns during this period were about 9 degrees and 8 degrees, respectively, as opposed to 5 degrees and 7 degrees at the acclimating temperature of 0 degrees. After this initial increase in hardiness, neither crowns nor leaves increased their hardiness substantially for the following week. If the plants were left at the acclimating temperature of 5 degrees for more than 3 weeks, the leaves reached a maximum hardiness of negative 28 degrees by four weeks and did not increase further for eight weeks or longer. I'm going to get somewhere real quick with this. However, the acclimating temperature of zero degrees following the plateau, i.e. after two weeks for leaves and three weeks for crowns, there was a linear increase in hardiness by the end of the fourth week. Leaves reached maximum hardiness of negative 29 and 26 degrees. So basically what this is saying is, is that the uh, acclimating temperatures that are a little bit higher than freezing were a little bit better than if it went straight to freezing. If you if it was able to harden off at a little warmer temperature for a little while, two or three weeks first, before it experienced the zero degrees Celsius, it, they tend the plants tended to survive better. Basically, at least I think that's what that paragraph said, or maybe that's in a different paragraph. We're gonna get to it. <laughs> Apologize. Um, for rapid acclimation, the plants initially need, oh, here we go, acclimating temperatures above zero degrees, but if held at the at that same temperature, the rate of acclimation slows down. The pro so, so you need sort of, the plant needs a sort of, a sort of a slow, gradual reduction in temperature to have a maximum amount of cold hardiness, if you want to call it that, or hardening off as opposed to dropping it and then leaving it there and dropping it and leaving it there. And I, ideally we would have a nice, slow, gentle movement into the, into the winter. Um, but we know that doesn't always happen, almost never happens. Um, but that's what this is saying. The process of acclimation following the initial stage can be hastened by lowering the acclimation temperature. Similar observations have been made in other herbaceous plants. In these studies, acclimating temperatures slightly above zero can induce the first stage of acclimation, which is thought to be associated with many metabolic and physiological changes. It is likely that the lower acclimating temperatures in the initial stage can retard the process of acclimation. Okay, so it is likely that the lower acclimating temperatures in the initial stage can retard the process of acclimation. So that really low temperatures can slow that process down. We don't want to drop it too low. In frost-hardy potatoes, for example, acclimating temperatures of 2 to 3 degrees were more effective than 0 degrees. Okay, so, I mean, I know we can't control the temperature, but, you know, the point is to be aware that if we're not, if we're having a nice mild winter and it's slowly moving in to the cold, really cold snaps of the winter, I would expect, or you can expect, or you can tell your clientele, you don't have to tell them, but I mean, if you can you know, reasonably predict that you're probably not going to have too many phone calls on, on winter death once it gets to freezing, as opposed to it's 80 degrees at the end of November, at the end of November. And then the next week it drops to, you know, 25 degrees Fahrenheit. In that, in that case, you know, you might, you know, expect some phone calls and that's, what's going to happen here. We have frost today. And like I said, next or this week at the end of towards the end of this week it's going to be 78 79 degrees now that's not 
too crazy, but I don't want it to stay in the 80s for too long into November and then suddenly have a freeze. Okay. I know that I know that might be sort of common experience that you've had, but these are data to support that. And this is turfgrass epistemology. So why why do you believe what you believe? How do we know what we know? Well, using your experiences and observation, but when we have data to support it, we can have much more confidence that what you're actually seeing is in fact what's occurring. And you can have more confidence talking to your clientele or your homeowners, your sport turf manager or whoever, your members at your club. You can have more confidence that what you're saying is indeed true because there's data to support it. And this is just um, a very introductory uh, manuscript. This is not an in-depth paper. There's many of the papers that are far more in-depth than this one. I'm just this is sort of just like a general paper that I felt was short enough and, and to the point enough to kind of introduce the topic. There's much more sound and uh, robust papers than than this one, and this one's a pretty good one. So let I want to I'm going to go into another paper probably in a month or two, but I wanted to I'll probably end up coming back to this table one at some point. But I wanted to point out a couple things here. They don't make these comparisons, but I'm going to kind of introduce it here. On in this particular table, it's the cold hardiness of leaf crown and root tissues of some turf grasses. And so over here we have. Uh, perennial rye, Kentucky bluegrass, and some fescues, okay? We have various cultivars of each. And we have them, the killing temperature of non-hardened, and we have the killing temperature of hardened plants, okay? And you can see, and again, this is early on. This was, well, this is 83. There should be stats in here, but there's there's no stats in here. They're just showing the temperatures. I, I wish they had stats, but um, um, we don't have them. But we can see that... The hardened crown, and I, again, leaf tissues are important, root tissues are important. I'm not going to, that's fine. But I'm really interested in the crown itself. That's what I want to focus on because I can make a plant come back from, you know, you can spray, oh, this is going to be way off topic, but you can spray glufo, don't do this, okay? <laughs> I don't want to do it. I don't want to recommend anything that is against the label. But you can spray plant, I'll just I'll just say some herbicide. You can spray uh, uh, tall tall fescue with some herbicides, uh, non-selective herbicides, by the way, and it'll kill the, t the, the leaf tissue. It'll wipe it out. But the plant will come back. Tall fescue will come back under certain, under certain conditions because the, the crown's not dead. It, that particular herbicide, which I'll leave the names out of it because I don't want <laughs> to get in trouble. But there's ways to remove some plants from tall fescue using a post-emergent I'm sorry, yeah, post-emergent non-selective. If you know some of the physiology of the plants, and that is this particular plant, the crown on this plant will die using this chemical. The crown of that plant probably won't die using that chemical, which I know is a fact because I've done it numerous times. And you can wipe out that plant that otherwise can't be removed using that non-selective. But the tall fescue will look horrible for like four weeks. But it'll come back because the crown's not dead, and the same. That's the and that's the reason why I'm interested more in the crown here than I am the leaf per se. I'm, I want to know what's going to kill the crown, the meristematic tissue from which the other stems and leaves emerge from. Okay, so we can see that the non-hardened. Let's just use perennial rye. The non-hardened perennial rye is you know negative seventeen and negative ten as as opposed to where when it's Hardened, we're looking at gaining two or three degrees. That's for perennial rye, which is one of the least 
cold hardy plants we have. But when you go to like bluegrass or fescues, you see the killing temperature of the crown negative 10 to say negative 12 for these species and cultivars. But look at what happens when you harden it off. It goes, it almost double. Well, it does double. Negative 10, negative, I'm sorry, negative 20, negative 27. Okay. So for one, this shows that the hardening off process is in the in the killing temperature is different for different species, even different cultivars within a species. It's very different. The magnitude of the benefit of hardening off is much more much different. Whereas these these bluegrasses and fescues in, in these data are, might be um, negative ten, negative twelve. You might see some killing temperatures if it's not hardened off. In other words, if you get a sudden freeze versus, you know, let's say you get a sudden freeze in the first of December after it's been warm and it only freezes to say negative 12, negative 13. Well, you're probably going to have some death of your bluegrass and fescues as opposed to that same freeze occurring in January when the plant's already been hardened off and it, and it freezes even colder and freezes down to like negative 18, negative 19. Well, those plants will probably still survive is what this is saying. Okay, and like I said, I, like I said earlier, I, I think you probably have that impression already from your experiences and from your observations and through your through your careers. Um, but I don't know if you've really well, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't know if you've really had data to support it. Like, yeah, this is why I believe this. This is why I'm recommending, or I'm, I'm, you know, uh, prepared to answer questions when sudden freezes occur. Okay, well, unfortunately, it was you know. It, we had a we had an unusual fall and it was warmer and all of a sudden it froze. It wasn't, and this is key. This is critical because this happens all the time. We this happened. I was in a lawsuit years ago in Florida, where the a company uh, said, "No, you guys gave us a product and it killed everything." Well, the product happened to go down right before a freeze. <laughs> okay, so you're going to say, "Okay, the product did it," or you're going to say, "The freeze did it." All right. So you have to be aware, like if you go out in late fall and you're going out with, say, soluble in, which we've been talking about. I mean, now's not too late. It's October, depending on where you're at. But if you go out late October, late November with some heavy rates of soluble in, we've, we're, we're pretty familiar with it. It's probably not going to exacerbate winter kill to any degree. The, the papers we've been going over have shown that. It's, I mean, it's not wise. You probably shouldn't do it in these especially heavy rates of soluble nitrogen late into November. It's not really going to help the plant that much. But it's also not going to hurt it that much, right? However, if you did that and then and it's been warm and then suddenly it freezes hard, the, your customer or your clients or your members or coaches might connect the two and say, "Hey, you just put that fertilizer down and then my turf died. Your fertilizer killed my turf." Meanwhile, it probably would have died anyway had you not put the fertilizer down because of the temperature. Sudden temperature drops if it was warm, and all of a sudden the temperature dropped and froze everything. And suddenly it looks like you did something wrong when in fact it probably was just the temperature, the, the natural situation with the grass. It just was warm and then it froze. Okay, so I think that's as, as good or better than an explanation or, re, or reason to understand that sudden drops in temperature are not, even if it drops to negative 15 Celsius, that's completely different than going to negative 15 Celsius after a slow cooling or cold period, a slow hardening off period. Okay. So be aware of that with your clientele and your customers that, I mean, not that you can control it, but you can at least help explain what happened 
rather than, you know, suddenly, you know, you're in a, <laughs> you're in a lawsuit getting deposed in the, in, in a lawyer's office in Orlando, you know, you don't want to go through that. So, um, <laughs> anyway, I, I digress. Sorry. Um, oh so how i find that ryegrass has more winter kill what else besides temps would be killing it well ryegrass will and here's here you see ryegrass okay ryegrass will consistently be noted in the literature as being the least cold hardy it will time after time after time it will be one of the least cold hardy whereas say something like poa annua or um well the blue grasses or the fine fescues will tend to be the more cold hardy and then the tall fescues tend to be in the middle somewhere <clears throat> bent grasses tend to be a little bit more cold hardy but perennial ryegrass is consistently over many many papers shown to be um more susceptible to winter kill than the other grasses so what else besides temps would be killing it I, i'm not gonna again so okay let me just go into it briefly looney but understand i've said this before i am not a plant physiologist okay i'm start you're, you're i'm starting to move out of my lane here okay so don't take what i'm saying as as absolute fact okay this is my understanding but my understanding could be wrong i'm not a plant physiologist when it comes to winter kill there seems to be pretty good evidence that it occurs as a result of the crown remaining moist as opposed to the crown um, drying out a little bit before it freezes. Not only that, the soil temperature. So if the soil is wet as opposed to the soil being dry, those turf grasses will, um, from my understanding, will tend to exhibit winter kill much more than if, when the soil is dry. So when the, when the soil is wet and cold and then freezes, Again, I'm, I hesitate to even say this because I could be wrong. I don't. I don't. I'm not a. Like I said, I'm not a physiologist. But it's my understanding that it's the moisture in the in the meristematic tissue of the crown and around the crown that will greatly enhance the winter kill itself, as opposed to allowing the plant to kind of dry out and acclimate itself a little bit to the temperatures, and then the freeze, the the low temperature occurs. Okay. <clears throat> uh well. Oh, well, yeah, you're asking, well, because the, the question is, well, th that's just going to be with genetics, Looney. So the, que the the comment is I asked because it looks like the temps on the charts don't vary much between cultivars. So the, the so you're talking about within a species, the temperatures don't change that much. So the difference between cultivars is it exists, but for the most part, it's, you know, consistent. But the difference between species is simply a genetic issue. I mean, I, I don't know that you'd have to get a like I said, you have to get a physiologist on here to explain why it is that one cultivar or one species is more resistant than another. I don't know why that is. I wouldn't even want to venture a guess because I can almost guarantee you I'll be wrong. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's species and cultivar differences, and that's going to have to do with genetics. As I'm assuming if they're all growing in the same soil and all growing under the same conditions, there's going to be differences. Those are going to be mainly due to genetics. Whether or not one plant, one plant accumulates you know, more of a particular element and that helps reduce it or whether it accumulates more, um, carbohydrates and that helps reduce it or it thickens the cell wall. And that helps. I don't know all that. <laughs> I guarantee you someone does though. 
Someone does, um, but there's going to be genetic differences among those species, and one way or the other, they're going. Some of those will have, be more hardy than others. Sorry if that doesn't um, satisfy the your interest in that that question. I'm just not equipped to answer it. Okay, the last little part there that I highlighted. One of the major differences between these two acclimating conditions is that under fill conditions, air temperatures can stay as low, stay below zero degrees for long periods of time, and the plants are subjected to dehydration caused by frost. For rapid cold acclimation of wintergreen, it has been suggested that a combination of acclimating temperatures is required, with the initial stage needing temperatures above zero, followed by lower temperatures. So short and skinny of it is, is that <clears throat> the, well, I guess the title of, what's the, what did I title this thing? I don't even remember what I titled this thing. What, what, what to expect? What to expect is as long as we're slowly moving into winter and the temperatures are slowly dropping, I would expect very little to occur. But if we're staying warm and when the turf grasses haven't been able to accumulate, to acclimate and haven't been able to, you know, move some of those carbohydrates and start making its changes and, you know, start hardening off the plant tissue, however it does that, if it hadn't had a chance to do that because it's warm and then suddenly a freeze occurs and it stays frozen, you're going to be more prone. There's going to be a greater risk of winter kill. Okay. But I, I say that to say this is that, you know, like I, like I said earlier in my, in my conversation or in my discussion is that I've seen time after time again that you have to remember, I used to be a fertilizer salesman and a, and a sales manager. I managed a lot of fertilizer. So I had to deal with a lot of different things in different parts of the state. And in the north part of the state, they dealt with freezes. In the south part of the state, they didn't deal with freezes. And so there's a lot of connections of point A and point B that are completely un unrelated because the customer will see this. Oh, you did this and that happened. Therefore, what you did must have occurred, must have caused that to happen. And, and you can end up, you know, you lose one customer, you know, Okay, but if you lose one customer and the word of mouth gets out and then they have a bad experience, you know, it can cascade, it can domino. So to to be aware of your environment when it comes to cool season grasses in the, in the fall, to be aware of that, oh, hey, the next three weeks, it looks like it's a pretty consistent low, you know, drop. It's going down one or two degrees every week and, you know, or whatever the case is and very little risk. But I'm looking at mine right now. Well, let's look at it. Let's look at my, my temperature right now. So right now, so the high today is, uh, the low this morning was uh, 38. And the high, I don't, I can't go backwards in time, but the high yesterday was like high 60s. At the end of the week, it gets up to 78 and then back down to 50 and 30. So it gets below freezing next Wednesday. Okay, so I'm looking at this going, I got freezing temperatures the middle of next week and I got, ideal growing conditions 78 80 degrees all of this week and it's sunny here for all of this week it's sunny and and high to high 70s to, to low eight well, high 70s so it's going to be growing out there and then next week it's going to freeze <laughs> so i'm not saying anything bad's going to happen i'm just saying be aware that it's going to it's going to drop holy yeah so looking at it it's, it's going to drop from 78 on next Sunday, to 50, it's going to drop 30 degrees in three days. That's what I'm talking about when it comes to papers like this. I would be concerned or at least be aware that it's going to drop 30 degrees in Lexington in the span of three days. 
at the at the end of October, and the drop is going to be to the point where it's below freezing. That's what I'm talking about when it comes to you know trying to forecast or be aware of what what might occur as a result of what you're doing. It's not as a result of what you're doing, but it could be perceived as a result of what you're doing by your customers. Well, I saw you spray out some pre-emergent herbicide. You're spraying something on my lawn, and now it's dead. Well, yeah, but it didn't have anything to do with it, okay? <laughs> because it was going to freeze anyway. It has to do with the freeze. Well, you did it, so you want, I want you to, to resod my lawn. I know you guys have experiences and, and examples of that, but it didn't have anything to do with it. Very likely, it had nothing to do with it. So this, these data, these results, and, I'm, and I'll eventually go into much more detail on some many other papers that give you some confidence, I hope, that indeed this drop in drastic drop in temperature followed by death is supported by science. It is supported by evidence that we've published. It's not just what I saw and I've been seeing for 10 years and someone said it at a turf conference somewhere. Indeed it is, in fact, fact. <laughs> okay, that's kind of the take home message. Um, I don't see anything else in the chat that I want to, well, unless you have something else, please let me know. I got about a minute or two here. Um, th this week, tomorrow will be at 10 a.m. So this is a normal week, 10 a.m. on Monday, 10 a.m. on Tuesday, 10 a.m. on Thursday. On Wednesday night, I'll do uh, a 9 p.m. podcast. So at night for those, uh, those people, audience members that can't make it in the morning who might be able to make it in the evenings. I'll do one on this this Wednesday at 9 p.m. Okay, guys? If there's no more questions, I really appreciate everybody showing up. Um, thanks for all the chat. Thanks for participating. Thanks for supporting this channel. I really appreciate it. I hope this helped. Thank you all. I'll see you guys tomorrow morning.